Father in heaven, we thank you for your amazing grace that actually kept us throughout the night and the miracle of us rising this morning. It's a miracle, Lord, because we are not aware of the warfare that takes place while our bodies rest. In the same way that Satan wanted to block Jesus from even raising Moses up from the dead, from his sleep, so it is that Satan every night tries to block us from awakening from our sleep. And it's only because of the victorious power of your love and your angels that we woke up this morning. Truly, it is a miracle and it is a blessing. We praise you and thank you for the privilege to study your word. We thank you for another opportunity to hear heaven speak to our heart. And Lord, we just ask you, please forgive us of our sins. Help us to be convinced of what you want to share with us today. It's our prayer that we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. The Bible presents to us a very startling truth, a very startling reality to all of us as human beings. God makes a statement through the Apostle Paul in the book of Romans chapter 3 that we need to talk about it a little bit. I want you to go with me to the book of Romans, the third chapter. When you study the book of Romans, it is difficult to not see that Paul's emphasis in the book of Romans is a desire that we might know God and his righteousness, which we receive by faith. His burden was for his brothers, especially those from the stock of Israel, because he was seeing Gentiles because he was sent to the Gentiles. He was seeing Gentiles that were receiving the blessings of heaven. He was literally seeing people who lived a heathenistic lifestyle, and yet they heard the message of Christ, their righteousness, and they received it by faith, and hence they received the blessings that came with that message. But when Paul would look to his own brethren, those who had the oracles of God, those who had that beautiful heritage, the wonderful stories of the victories coming out of Egypt into the Canaan land, when Paul would press against this point with his brethren, they were still stuck in believing that they could obtain righteousness, but it was going to be by the works of the law rather than by faith. And so it was that all throughout the book of Romans, you see it over and over and over again. Romans 1, Paul talks about how they were inconsistent. They were individuals who would go ahead and claim that they know God, but at the same time, they would turn away from God and they would begin to worship the creation rather than the creator. And as Paul began to unfold this in Romans 2, he begins to talk to his brethren. He says, thou art an inexcusable old man who judges another because the very things you judge your Gentile brothers for, you're guilty of the same sins. But in Romans 3, he unfolds it even more. And Paul makes a startling point, I believe, not only to those of his day, but it applies to even God's people today. The Bible says in the book of Romans chapter 3, and if you're there, please let me know by saying amen. The Bible says in verse 10, it says, as it is written, there is how many? It says there is none righteous, no, not even one. 
There is none that understandeth. There is none that seeketh after God. They are all gone out of the way. They are together become unprofitable. There is none that doeth good. No, not even one. This was a very appropriate statement for the Apostle Paul to give to his Jewish brothers. It's a very appropriate statement because, again, they were bent on the idea that the works of the law, by us doing the works of the law, we shall be known as the righteous children of God. And Paul wanted them to understand, listen, there's a place for good works. No question about it. There's a place for all sorts of manifestations. I read in Romans 1, verses 16 and 17, it says, For I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ. For it is the power of God unto salvation to everyone that believeth, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. But I love verse 17. It says, for therein, in the righteous, in the gospel, it says, for therein is the righteousness of God. And that next word is very important. Does anybody know what that next word is? Revealed. In the gospel is the righteousness of God, and it will be revealed. From faith to faith, as it is written, the just shall live by faith. There is no question that God wants the gospel that we have received to be revealed in our day-to-day living. There's no question about that. So if we truly are in Christ, it will be manifested in good works. No question about that. The gospel must be revealed. But my brothers and sisters, we must be careful not to make the old Jewish mistake which is to think that our intellectual understanding of truth, to think that our various external deeds can make us right and make us good before God. And the question is, are we convinced? You see, God wants to get the point across to us. There's nothing that we could ever do to make ourselves righteous. Paul makes it clear. He says there's none righteous. Can you imagine he's saying this to a group of people who actually are there thinking they're righteous? It was a very deep rebuke. If it were more direct, he was saying, all of you who think you're righteous, none of you are righteous. All of you who think you're doing good, none of you do good. And that is deep because somebody could say, well, wait, hold up, bro. I wrote a check. I wrote a check to support God's work. Don't tell me I didn't do anything good. But what we forget sometimes is First Chronicles 29. Go to First Chronicles 29. This is for all the check writers. You see, sometimes we think that we're doing God favors. Sometimes we think we're helping God. And I tell you the truth, one of these days I'm going to do it too. There's an education that donors need. I've learned this. There is an education that donors really need. Because even to date, many of us who donate money act and behave like we are doing God a favor. And like we are helping God out. And I'm like, man, we need to go back to 1 Chronicles 29. Look at what it says. In 1 Chronicles 29, notice what the Bible says. I mean, Lord, just put that in my mind, so I'm going to go ahead and give it. First Chronicles 29. I pray every donor in this room, may we please, because I donate too, may we all really get what God is saying in this verse. The Bible says in First Chronicles 29, right there in verse 14, what does it say? It says, but who am I? I love that. But who am I? And what is my people that we should be able to offer so willingly after this sort? And I love the close of that verse. We should read it together. It says, for how many things? For all things 
come of thee, and of thine own have we given thee. Now, I didn't say 10%. I didn't read anything in that verse that said 10%. It says how many things? Every penny that you and I have came from God. And all that we do when we donate is we're giving back to God what he already gave us, which means we could have never given it if God didn't give it first. You understand that? And so we got to get out of this attitude that there are many ways that we check the preacher by saying, excuse me, what do you mean there's none good? I am good. I did good. We don't understand, my brothers and sisters. You know how we study astronomy and we study the constellations and, and we learn science and we learn that God was so gracious, so wonderful that he positioned the earth. And he positioned the sun and he positioned the moon and all these different planets. He positioned them perfectly. And I don't know if you ever read these teachings where sometimes if the earth were to move just a little bit over to the right or move just a little bit over to the left, one way will burn up and be singed. If we move another way, we will freeze and we will die. God perfectly aligned everything in our galaxy, in our universe, in space, etc. God is so particular. In other words... As God governs and guides all of these planets and everything else, do you really think your heart beats every day just because it beats? My brothers and sisters, your heart is literally going boom, 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 right now because there's someone who is supervising it. Whenever you take a step and that bone marrow begins to produce more blood platelets, more red blood cells, more white blood cells. That's why exercise is so important. Every time we exercise, we're helping our body and our bone marrow to produce more platelets, more red blood cells, more white blood cells that keeps the body functioning and keeps us in a great state of health. You think that all of that stuff is just running on its own? It's a great supervisor, my brothers and sisters. We can't even breathe, except it be that God's loving hand is overseeing every breath we take. And therefore, when we do good, all we're doing is giving back to God what he gave us. I am preaching right now. I am teaching the word of God right now. But that teaching, that preaching, that breath, that ability, that cognitive mindset that can understand where the verses are and where to go to it, etc. All of that is a gift from God. There's none good. There's nothing you do and there's nothing I do that we can throw it back in God's face and say, look what I've done. Look what I've done for you. My brothers and sisters, we have to recognize that what Paul said to those Jewish brothers and sisters, he's saying to all of modern Israel today, there's none righteous. No, not one. There's none good. Not even one. And you know how it is. And if we have for real human nature, then what that means is we will challenge God. You know, humans love to challenge God. God says Babylon will never be inhabited again. There's people that's been trying to set it up. And to date 2017, nobody can inhabit that area that was known as ancient Babylon that God promised us through the book of Isaiah will never be occupied ever again. Man loves to challenge God. And so what happens is sometimes we like to challenge God and say, oh, there's none righteous. Well, I'll do more righteous work. And when we do that, God says, I got a word for that. Go to Isaiah 64. The 
Bible says very clearly. God says, I got a word for that, too. The Bible makes it very, very clear. In Isaiah 64, and consider the verse. In Isaiah 64, notice what it says as we look at verse 6. The question this morning is, are we convinced? In Isaiah 64 and verse 6, the Bible says, but we are how many? We are all as an unclean thing. And all, how much? All our righteousnesses are as filthy rags. And we all do fade as a leaf. And our iniquities like the wind have taken us away. God says even when we give our best self-efforts, it is offensive. It's like a woman's used sanitary napkin. That's what the word filthy rags means in the Hebrew. God says it's very offensive when we try to do our own righteousness and present it to him like, hey, look at what I've done. Therefore, give me now. We cannot do that, my brothers and sisters. You see, if the truth of the matter is, is when we look at the word righteous, what really is righteousness? At the end of the day, what is righteousness? If we can get that down, then I think it will help us. I'm going to do it this way. Number one, when we think about what is righteousness, we can go ahead and summarize it. I stand in full agreement with the book Christ Object Lessons when it says this. Righteousness is what? Right doing. Righteousness is right doing, and it is by their deeds that all will be judged. Righteousness is what? Right doing. Now, notice how the apostle John spells this out very nicely. John says, little children, let no man deceive you. He that what? Doeth righteousness, what? Is righteous. The Bible is very clear on this. The spirit of prophecy is very clear on this. Righteousness is doing the right thing. And when God spells it out, he says, let no man deceive you. He that doeth righteousness is righteous. The only people that are truly righteous are the ones that are doing righteousness. But the reality is, is that there's none that does good. There's none that is good. When we go to Psalms 119, you can turn there with me. The Bible makes it very clear what righteousness is. In Psalms, the 119th division, we can go ahead and consider verse 172. And the Bible gives very specific language on what righteousness is that we are to do. And when we do it, we are therefore righteous. The Bible makes it clear. It says in Psalms, the 119th division. And you look at verse 172. And when you get there, please let me know by saying amen. The Bible says in Psalms 119, 172, my tongue shall speak of thy word for how many? All thy commandments are righteousness. So when we think about what is righteousness, righteousness is all of God's commandments. Does that make sense? That's the Bible. And when we do righteousness or when we do or keep God's commandments, then God says, then indeed, you're righteous. But the problem is there are none righteous because we all try but fail consistently to truly keep God's commandments. Can you imagine this is a message going to commandment keepers? By way of profession, God wants us to understand that he wants righteousness. He wants us to follow his commandments. He wants us to honor him. Why? Because, my brothers and sisters, there's beautiful benefits That comes to the righteous. If we truly are righteous, there are blessings that comes to the righteous. Look at the blessings. The Bible says 
The way of the wicked is an abomination unto the Lord, but he loveth him that followeth after righteousness. God says, I love it when they follow after righteousness. That's what a Christian is. You know, did you know Christians are followers after righteousness? Sometimes people say, what are Christians? I always like to answer questions in a way that makes people think and ask more questions. So when somebody says, what's a Christian? I know most of us would say, oh, a follower of Christ. But I'll sooner say a follower of righteousness. They'll say, what do you mean? Well, and that allows me to help them understand what righteousness is, all God's commandments. Then I take them to 1 Corinthians 1, where it tells us very clearly that Christ is our righteousness. And therefore, I show them that a true Christian is one who follows after righteousness, who follows after Christ, their righteousness. And they reveal that they are Christians by the keeping of his commandments. And you know what God says about that? He says, I love those who do that. Those who followeth after righteousness. God says, I love them. God is thoroughly pleased. But it goes on. It's more than that. The Bible also says, open ye the what? Gates. Open ye the gates that the righteous nation which keepeth the truth may enter in. It's only those whom God can call the righteous nation that will go through the gates into the city. What was it that the righteous nation were doing that became a means by which God says, I'm going to let them enter into the gates? What was it that they were doing? Open book test, family. It's right there in front of you. They keep the truth. You understand that? The righteous nation, which keeps the truth. That was the fruit. The righteous nation, which keeps the truth, may enter in. So what does the Bible say? Thou art near, O Lord, and all thy commandments are truth. You see that? The righteous nation keeps the truth. They were keeping God's commandments. God says, I have no problem letting you in the gates. What were these gates anyhow that God was talking about? Revelation tells us, blessed are they that do his commandments that they may have right to the tree of life and may enter in through the gates into the city, the blessed new Jerusalem. God will have a people who love him so much that they will keep all his commandments. They will keep righteousness because they have righteousness dwelling within them. But the problem is we are unrighteous. The problem is the good that we're supposed to be doing, we're not doing it. And so we need to therefore ask a very important question. And the question is, how do we become righteous? If I'm naturally unrighteous and if every time I try to be righteous, I'm just failing more and still more. I'm I'm making the problem worse. I'm making it more magnified because even all my best works, all my righteousnesses are as filthy rags. I mean, Lord, this is a serious problem. How can you help me? The Bible is very clear in Jeremiah 13 and verse 23. We won't turn to it, but please write it down. Jeremiah 13 and verse 23. The Bible is very, very clear on this family. It asks a question which is fairly rhetorical. The question is, can the Ethiopian change his skin? What do you think the answer is? No. Then it says, can the leopard change his spots? What do you think the answer is? Then the next question is, then how can you do good when you're accustomed to doing evil? We have a problem. The same way that the Ethiopian can't change his skin, the same way that the leopard can't change his spots, is the same way that as long as we still have an evil nature, we will never be able to do good. We will never be able to do his law. We will never be able to do righteousness. And so God understood this problem, but thank the Lord, he provided a solution. And the solution comes from the question, how do we become 
righteous. Notice what the Bible spells out. And this is why God needs the seventh day Adventist church to really be about their business. Because this question we're entertaining is not just a question for SDAs. It's a question for every so-called Christian group out there. It's for every Muslim group. It's every Buddhist group, every group, every heathen religion, every movement, even the atheists and the agnostics. Everybody's trying to do right. Everybody's seeking to better understand what's right. God has given us the answer. And he holds us accountable to give it to the rest of the world. And so it is that notice, notice how we can become righteous. Look at what the Bible says. Even the righteousness of God, which is by what? Faith of Jesus Christ. Notice that the righteousness of God comes by the faith of Jesus Christ. Is that right? Notice what it says. By the faith of Jesus Christ unto how many? All and upon all them that believe. For there is no difference, being justified freely by his grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. That's Romans 3, 22 and 24. Second witness. The Bible says in Galatians 2, 16, knowing that a man is not justified by the works of the law, but by the faith of Jesus Christ. You know what justified means? To be made right. That's, what, that's literally what it means, to be made right. So the Bible's making it clear. A man is not made right by the works of the law, but by the faith of Jesus Christ. So that's a second witness. Faith of Jesus Christ. Even we have believed in Jesus Christ that we might be justified by the faith of Christ, made right by the faith of Christ and not by the works of the law. For by the works of the law shall no flesh be justified or by the works of the law, no flesh shall be made right before God. Then the Bible says it again. Third witness, Galatians 3, 22 and 24. But the scripture hath concluded how many? All under sin that the promise by faith of Jesus Christ might be given to them that believe. Wherefore the law was our schoolmaster to bring us unto Christ, that we might be made right by faith. So over and over and over again, when we ask the question, how can we be made righteous? According to the Bible, what's the answer? By the faith of Jesus Christ. Now, my brothers and sisters, if we really understood that, and we see how lawless, how unrighteous our world is, I pray that you get a fire that burns up inside of you that will never be put out. John the Revelator said, here is the patience of the saints. Here are they that keep the commandments of God. They keep righteousness by the faith of Jesus. The third angel's message literally is the solution to all these problems that we have in our world. You see, a lot of us keep thinking the third angel's message is just some warning that we just tell everybody, watch out for the Sunday law. My brothers and sisters, that is not the limitation of the third angel's message. In fact, the prophet herself made it clear. She says in the book Evangelism, page 190, she says, many have asked unto me if the third angel's message is the message of justification by faith. What was her answer? She said, it is justification by faith in truth. That's the third angel's message. You don't think the world needs this? We keep thinking that the world needs this simply to watch out for the Sunday law. The world needs this in that context. I like how Bill Lehman put it. He said very clearly, he said that justification by faith, he said the third angel's message simply gives teeth to it. Justification by faith has been the theme from the book of Genesis all the way to Revelation. 
but living in a time when the beast power is trying to get everybody to live and establish in man-made righteousness, how much the more does the message need to go forward that we need to show people how to truly be found righteousness, righteous before God? This is the time to give the third angel's message, like never before, to demonstrate true righteousness. But it has to go beyond the message. Isn't that right? I mean, it's got to go beyond the message. Like we talked about last night, for those who were here, we talked about it. It does not make sense. Listen, I'm just giving this as an example, okay? I'm not saying this to try to offend anybody. I'm speaking in the context of the human mind and human nature. If I am overweight and then I tell somebody... I got the solution on how you cannot be overweight. Do you think that they will listen to me? Because they're going to say, you need to follow your own message. If I have pimples that are covering my face, and then I go to somebody and I say, listen, I can show you how you could have the most clearest, baby smooth skin. People are going to look at me, and they're going to say, uh, sounds like you need your own message. You understand that? If I'm outside talking to my wife and I'm yelling at her, why don't you do this? You don't understand. And I'm just getting on my wife. And then I walk over to you and say, listen, let me show you how you can have heaven on earth in your marriage. <laughs> Am I speaking to in the context of human mind, human nature? People are going to say, listen, you got to live your message first. You understand that? Why don't you get a grip on your message? And as you get a grip on your message and let your message bear some fruit in your life, it will be a whole lot easier for me to listen to you because now I don't see you as a hypocrite or a potential one. Now there's some checks and balances to this. There's a missionary when I used to be at Tacoma Missions. I'm not at Tacoma Missions any further, but, and, I, and I thank the Lord for my time there. But nevertheless, I'm not there presently. But when I was there, I remember that there was a, a brother, and he was a very big man, very big man name is Herb. Love him. And when Herb was there, he and I went to Walmart. And when we went to Walmart, we were doing some things, and Herb became a health reformer. Herb at that time probably was about maybe a little over 300 plus pounds. And when we were in the store, Herb saw this sister who was at the desk, and she's buying food. It was bad food. So Herb took the initiative to say, sister, you know, I just want to let you know that, you know, some of these food groups here, these are not necessarily the best things for you. Have you ever heard of this? These are things that are wonderful for your diet. It promotes health and so on and so forth. And you could watch the woman as she's listening. She's kind of like, you know, kind of looking at him like, uh, you know, you following your message? But Herb was just going with great confidence. You see, what that woman didn't understand is that the man who was standing before her that was 300-something pounds used to be 700. Do you get that? He was on the journey. He didn't arrive yet, but he was on the journey. God is so good that he says, even though you as my people have not arrived, he said, what's more important right now is I want to make sure that you're on the journey. You got to be in the path. You understand that? So I'm not here to disqualify any of us if you got pimples, if you're obese, or if you have some problems with your family, that you just better not say anything to anybody. If you know you're living a double life, then you need to be quiet. And you don't need to be preaching or teaching or encouraging anybody to do anything. You need to go and sit with God and be encouraged. But my brothers and sisters, if you're on the journey, and you went from 10 arguments to 2, if you went from 20 pimples to 10, if you went from 700 pounds to 350, God says, I can use you. God says, I can do something through you. 
because you'll be my testimony. You understand that? My brothers and sisters, God wants to make it clear. If you're going to give the message of the third angel. Sooner or later, you and I are going to recognize a warning's not enough. You know, some of us are masters at warning people. But we're dwarfs at showing people what to do after the warning. That's not good. Just telling people that the Sunday law constitutes the mark of the beast. And then showing people how close we are to the Sunday law. My brothers and sisters, if that's all you have to offer, and then you got some shallow, let's come to Jesus. Let's just learn to surrender our hearts to him. But you don't explain what it means to come to Jesus. You don't explain what it means to surrender the heart. You don't explain what is righteousness by faith. We're not truly providing a solution. And we can start becoming alarmists. God wants us to provide a solution. If you're going to give the third angel's message, give it in its fullness. Give it in its beauty. Give verses 9 to 11 and give the warning crystal clear. But you make sure that you show those people verse 12. You let them see Revelation 14, 12. Let them see that you are a patient saint, not an irritable saint, not an intemperate saint. Let them see that you keep the commandments of God. Why? Because... You have received the faith of Jesus Christ. Let them see that. So when somebody says, how do I become righteous? The answer is very simple. It is by the faith of Jesus. No question. So now the next question, how do we get the faith of Jesus? It is the faith of Jesus that can make us righteous. No doubt that is clear. But the question is, how do I get the faith of Jesus? I mean, you know, we can't just say we have it. We need to get it. And so it makes sense to ask the question, well, how do I get the faith of Jesus? Well, you read it. The answer was in what you just read. So what I did was I made it a little bit easier. I'm going to show you it now. And the word in orange. You saw words in yellow. You saw words in white. But it's the word in orange that I want you to pay attention to because that's how you get the faith of Jesus. So let's look at it again. What word is in orange? Believe. Do you see that? In each of the verses. Righteousness, justification, being made right, it comes by the faith of Jesus. But how do I get the faith of Jesus? The Bible's clear. It says, even the righteousness of God, which is by faith of Jesus Christ, unto all and upon all them that believe. Knowing that a man is not justified by the works of the law, but by the faith of Jesus Christ, even we have believed. In Jesus Christ, that we might be justified by the faith of Christ. But the scripture hath concluded all under sin that the promise by faith of Jesus Christ might be given to them that believe over and over and over again. The only way I get the benefit of the faith of Jesus by which I am made righteous before God is I and you. We must believe. I started to look up the word believe because, you know, believe It can be a very shallow word. It's a very powerful word in the Bible. Do you know true belief? You know, I love talking to my friends in Sunday churches. And sometimes they say, we don't need to keep the commandments of God. All we need to do is believe in Jesus Christ. And I say, you sure about that? And they say, oh, yes. I say, okay. I said, can I show you a biblical concept of believing in Jesus? And they said, yes. Go to John 14. I'm just giving this as a little tidbit to all of you evangelists out there. All you soul winners, I want you to look at what the Bible clearly says. Clearly, clearly, clearly. 
John 14. Believe. When my friends from different churches try to say that we do not need to keep the commandments of God, all we need to do is believe in Jesus Christ, I know that they have a very shallow understanding of the word believe. Because what does the Bible say in John 14? The Bible says in John 14, right there in verse 12, it says, Verily, verily, truly, truly, I say unto you, he that what? He that believeth on me, what does the rest of the sentence say? The works that I do, shall he do also. Is that not clear? The works that if I really believe in Jesus, then the works that Jesus did are the works that I as a believer will do. Doesn't that make sense? So then I tell them, now watch this. What chapter are we in? John 14. Go one chapter over to verse 15. Look at the works that Jesus did. It's very simple. John 15 verse 10. What does it say? If ye keep my commandments, you shall abide in my love, even as I did what? Kept my father's commandments and abide in his love. So it was one of the works of Jesus that he kept the commandments. Is that right? So then if you believe on Jesus, then you should be doing the works he did, which is keep the commandments. So it makes no sense when our dear friends say, our misinformed friends say, I don't need to keep the commandments. All I need to do is believe. We have to help them understand what the word believe means. You understand that? Oh, but it goes deeper than that. While that's true for our friends outside the church, you know there's a concept of belief that needs to be taught in the church. I have never been so convinced that even Seventh-day Adventists don't believe in Jesus. Many of us. Great number. Alarming number. Why do I believe that? Because I looked up the word believe. When you look up the word believe, what I did was I, I pulled it right from the very text we were looking at, Romans, Galatians, and so on. I started to look up the word believe in the original language, the original intent, the original thought of God when he was right having that written by the scribe. And the word believe actually means this. It means, number one, to have what? Faith and to trust. You see, to believe God in the way God wants it is that we trust him. You know how many of us are struggling with that? Many of us are struggling with that. And I'm talking about present truthers. I'm talking about people who profess the first, second, and third angels message. There are some of us who say, I believe the three angels. There are some of us who are teaching three angels. Some of us are traveling and doing a lot of stuff. We are doing all sorts of things. But we, by our lifestyle, by our choices and what have you, we testify we don't trust him. The faith of Jesus comes to those that believe, but it is better termed the faith of Jesus comes to those who trust him. And a lot of us treat Jesus like we treat people. You know how we do with people. I trust you this much. Thus far, no further. Christ says that kind of faith will never get you into my house. The faith of Jesus. 
Number one, the faith of Jesus means it's the faith that Jesus has. You understand that? It's his faith. Did Jesus have an attitude towards the Father thus far, no further? So the question is, why do we? Jesus said, I came not to do mine own will, but I came to do the will of him that sent me. I don't make judgments. He makes the judgments. And I just simply do what he says. John 8, verse 29, Jesus says, I always do those things that please him. That's why Jesus had an assurance that he knew my father's with me. He says, I always do those things that please him. He never did anything that pleased himself. The first initiative for Christ was, Father, does it please you? If it pleases you, then I'll do it. If it doesn't please you, no matter how much I want to do it, I won't do it. You understand that? Faith of Jesus. So the trust of Jesus. That's why we must meditate on the life of Christ more than anybody else. My brothers and sisters, you know, Elijah, uh, John the Baptist, Abraham, Moses, all of these men were great men. Ruth, Esther, great women. But you know what? All of them are lesser lights. They're all lesser lights that point us to the greater light. I have learned my goal is not to be like Elijah. My goal is not to be like Daniel. My goal is not to be like John the Baptist. My goal is not to be like Moses, Abraham, or anybody else. My goal is to be like Jesus. Because whatever good you see in Daniel was merely a reflection of Jesus. Whatever good you see in Abraham, whatever good you saw in Elijah, whatever good you see in any of the patriarchs, the prophets, or the apostles, whatever good you saw in them, it was as a result of the greater light reflecting his light on them. If some of us are like Elijah, one day we might end up running away from the war and become a coward. If some of us are like Moses, we might lose our temper and not do what God says and do something completely different. If some of us are trying so hard to be like Abraham, one day we might even follow the foul counsel of our misdirected spouses and deny faith when we were supposed to live by it. God is so faithful that he did not just record the successes of his soldiers, but he recorded their failures. And God says, don't repeat the failure. Only repeat the successes. But there's one man who walked on this earth and he said something that nobody else could say it. You just read it. I don't know if you caught it. Jesus said, I have kept my father's commandments. You know, Abraham can't say that. David can't say that. Elijah can't say that. Daniel couldn't say that. No patriarch, prophet, or apostle could say that. Because when Jesus said it, he wasn't speaking for the time. He was speaking for his entire life. At every phase, he lived victorious over sin. Question, what is sin? The breaking of God's law. So question, what is victory over sin? Keeping God's law. Jesus says, I kept God's law. Jesus lived a complete life victorious over sin. Sin never had dominion over him, not even once. Can Elijah say that? No. Can Abraham say that? No. Can any of the patriarchs, prophets, or apostles say that? No. So then my goal is not to be like them. My goal is to be like the one who lived a complete life victorious over every temptation and every sin. And the more that we fix our eyes on Jesus, my brothers and sisters, we will see that his faith is sufficient to be termed righteousness. 
And so it is that when we start looking at this, we have to understand we can become righteous. It's only by the faith of Jesus. And it comes to us when we believe that, but we must trust that. That when he says, if you confess your sins, if you accept me as the atonement, if you believe in my words and follow them, he says, I'll pardon you from your past. If you believe my words when I say that I will give you strength to do anything I tell you to do. If you believe my words when I say that it is God which worketh in you to will and to do of my good pleasure, then there's no such thing as impossible anymore. That which is impossible with man is possible with God. You see, true trust. Watch the parallelism here. A powerful parallel about believing God. Look at what the Bible says. And ye have not his what? Word abiding in you for whom he hath sent him ye believe not. The person that was not believed was Jesus himself. He's rebuking the Pharisees here in John 5. But why is it that they did not believe him because they did not believe his word? Notice that. Again, later on, Jesus is dialoguing with them again. For had you believed what? Now, was Moses alive during those days? No. So what did Moses leave behind for everybody? The word. You understand that? So Jesus is saying, for had you believed the word, you would have believed me, for he wrote of me. See, true belief, yea, true trust in God is true belief and true trust in his word. That's what it is. There's only two things in the New Testament we are called to live by, faith and the word. The just shall live by faith. Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word. Those are the two things that Christ says live by. And guess what? Faith cometh by hearing and hearing by the word. It just goes beautifully together. What God is saying is the revelation of the true child of God, the revelation of one who has received the faith of Jesus are those that live by my word. They trust what I say. Our 11 o'clock study. Our 11 o'clock study is called Cultivating Faith. These studies are so necessary. I keep reading. I'm a reader because I'm an ignorant fisherman. I'm a high school dropout. And I know that according to the world standards, I am a dumb me with capital D-U-M-M-Y. And so I know that I have to apply myself because I don't have Ph.D., M.D. and a lot of other letters behind my name. The only letters behind my name is L-E-M-O-N. I am Dwayne Lemon. That's it. And so it is that I got to study to show myself approved unto God. So I'm studying, I'm reading. And the more that I study and read, I keep seeing this theme pop out. It's like God is trying to get something across to us. And it's a bit deeper than merely knowing a crisis is near. We have to know the crisis is near. I am not here to negate that message. I said it a thousand times, even though naysayers still say what they say. I am not here to put away that message. I'm putting that message in its proper place. A warning cannot convert anybody, and you have no Bible to prove that. A warning does not convert a single man or a single woman. You cannot prove that with the word of God. You can play with Ellen White's writings, but you won't truly substantiate it. A warning does not change people. Jesus changed his people. So at the conclusion of the warning, we must say, behold, the Lamb of God, which taketh away the sin of the world. And that is to be our emphasis, not our visitation. 
We are to dwell on this, not visit this point. I hope you caught that statement just now. My brothers and sisters, when I look at this thing right here, Christ is saying, you got to trust my word. Do you believe my word? Do you trust me? Are we convinced? And the reason that this becomes so important is because getting to the final closing meat of this message, watch this. The challenge with righteousness being put upon us. We read that in Romans 3, 22 and 24. Unto all and upon all, them that believe. Do you know what the great challenge is? We have a struggle trusting what God says. You see, God can make us righteous, my brothers and sisters. It comes by the faith of Jesus Christ and Christ alone. We must learn to trust him to be the propitiation for our sins of the past and be our power source to live a victorious life for the future. But I learned a frustration point. You ready? Watch this. Go to the book of Romans chapter 4. It's an interesting verse. It's an interesting verse of scripture. Romans chapter 4. I believe that this is very foundational on how God begins this process of helping us go from unrighteous to righteous. Romans chapter 4. The Bible says in the book of Romans chapter 4, when you get there, just please say amen. Amen. Beautiful chapter dealing with righteousness by faith. And it says right there in verse 5, it says in Romans 4 verse 5, But to him that worketh not, but believeth on him that justifieth the ungodly, his faith is counted for righteousness. Okay? There is something in that verse that I believe We are not convinced. What's the title of our message? Are we convinced? Are we convinced? The verse, does the verse talk about justification? Does it talk about justification in the verse? Does it talk about faith in the verse? While some of us may struggle with justification, while some of us may struggle with faith, I think our greatest struggle, and I got prophetic proof for this, I think our greatest struggle is the who. According to the verse, who is it that God justifies? Who said that? Say it so much louder, my brother. Say it one more time. The Bible says that God justifies the... So if you're not ungodly, you can't be justified. You know why? Because in your mind, you already think you're godly anyhow. The only people, according to the verse, that actually gets the gift of justification are those who are convinced that they are ungodly. Are you convinced? It's the title of our message. Are we really convinced? You see, I have prophetic proof. I don't think we're convinced. The prophetic proof is right there. Revelation 3, 14 through 17. The last church, the last people, God has a message for them. The people of the judgment. 
God says, I got a message for these people, the last church, my last people. What did God say to his last church, his last people? God says in Revelation 3, verses 14 through 17. The Bible says in Revelation 3, we're looking at 14 through 17. And here's what the text says. The text says, unto the angel of the church of the Laodiceans write, these things saith the amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of the creation of God. God says, I know thy works. That thou art neither cold nor hot, I would thou were cold or hot. But so then, because thou art lukewarm and neither cold nor hot, God says, I'll spew thee out, out of my mouth. Then he says in verse 17, because thou sayest, I am rich and increased with goods and have need of nothing and knowest not that thou art wretched, miserable, poor, blind, and naked. Do you know that that fivefold symptom that we just read, wretched, miserable, poor, blind, and naked, that all describes ungodly. Ungodly. Because you know what that means? The word ungodly simply means unlike God. We're just not like him. That's the crisis. That's the issue. We're not like him. So you can put wickedness in a lot of other terms there, but all of that just proves we're not like him. So God actually prophetically has shown us that in the last days, this will be a problem amongst my people. They don't know that they're ungodly. And as a result of that, they cannot receive righteousness. That's the first step. You and I cannot experience true righteousness by faith. We cannot get it. If we don't honestly can honestly say, I see that I am ungodly. Because the only people, according to the verse, that God justifies are the ungodly. Because if you don't see yourself as ungodly, then you won't see your need for justification. You won't see it. It's actually logical. My brothers and sisters, there are some of us that are allowing God to have dominion in certain areas of our life. But there are other areas where we are still telling God no. We are reasoning and rationalizing with God. We are telling God that he is incorrect and that we are correct. That is insulting to God. But at the same time, I praise God that he's long-suffering. I thank the Lord that he's patient. You see, the way that I know that we are ungodly, and again, sometimes we use these words ungodly and we think of just the most gross, vomitous things. You know, when we think of demon possession, you would never think of a person dressed like me. You know, suit, well-groomed, collected, talking intelligently. We, don't, we say, no, nah, that's not a demonic person. We need to see somebody with wild hair, ripped up raggedy clothes, and, you know, acting silly or whatever. We say, oh, oh that, that's a demon-possessed person. There's a lot of demon-possessed people that wear suits, very nice suits, very well-tailored, super spit-shine shoes, well-groomed, and actually speak intelligently. One of them was Judas. Jesus said... One of you is a devil. But before that, the disciples was like, look at how calm, cool, collected he is. Look at how smart he is. Look at how skilled he is. Master, he will benefit our movement. They didn't even realize that they were recommending a devil to become part of the team. Even deeper, Jesus accepted a devil to become part of his team. So demon possession, we don't get it. Same thing with ungodly. My brothers and sisters, Ungodly is to not be like God. 
That means that we may not be adulterers watching pornography or sleeping with some other woman or man, or we might not be murderers taking a knife and and stabbing someone or shooting a gun. We may not do that crazy, gross stuff. But Jesus said when we look upon a woman to lust after her, we're still adulterers. Jesus says when you hate your brother and you don't even have a reason for hating your brother, Jesus says you're still a murderer. The Bible says that Satan was a murderer from the beginning. Have you ever studied that? How was Satan a murderer from the beginning? Who he murdered in heaven? We don't know anybody he murdered in heaven. What are you talking about? But when you start comparing it with 1 John 3 and verse 15, Proverbs 24, 26 through 28, we see that you can murder people by telling lies about them. And that's exactly what Satan did. He misrepresented the character of God to those angels, and a third of them bought into it. He murdered the reputation of God before those holy angels. The point is, is that are we convinced that we're ungodly? Now, the truth of the matter is, until we are convinced, we will continue to frustrate what God wants to accomplish in helping us to truly become justified by the faith of Jesus Christ, putting our trust holistically upon Christ to make us right before God because of his sacrifice on our behalf, his ministry in the sanctuary above. It is until we can trust on that level and surrender everything to him. You see, if you live by the word, then that means family. Think about the simplicity of this. How many of you today, honestly, when you go shopping for clothes, you take your Bible and you look at what the word of God says as it relates to what constitutes Christian dress, male or female. Very few people live like this. How many of us, when we want to get food and we want to get certain quality of food and we want to think about the times that we're going to eat and all these other things and how much we should eat, how many of us are going to the word of God and letting God guide us and show us what is appropriate versus what is not? We don't let that happen. Many of us, we're letting the taste buds. We're honoring the creation rather than the creator. And that's why some of us are constantly getting sick or some of us are an explosion waiting to happen because of our mass intemperance. And it's like God is just trying to say, I wish I could just have people that understood what it means to be like me. Jesus did not make a move. Without knowing, Father, do you approve? There's no such thing as a recreation without knowing, Father, do you approve? When it comes to where we live, what we do with our money, etc., does God govern it? Do we honestly say, Lord, guide me. Show me what you want me to do. And not with supposition. We are told in Great Controversy, page 598, we have a chart that points out every way mark on the heavenward journey. And we do not have to guess at anything. We should know what the word of God says, how to live, where to live, what kind of home should I get? What are the principles that governs how we eat, drink, dress? How should I train my children? What's the proper education that we give to our children, etc.? Brothers and sisters, we shouldn't be guessing at that. We should know. This is how God would live. And so while we can see the simplicity of what we're studying thus far. The reality is, maybe we're not convinced. Maybe I'm not convinced 
that I am indeed ungodly. And there's only one way that that can change. Only one. I want you to notice the book of Isaiah chapter 6. We'll bring this to a close here. I had a lot more to share with you. Uh, We'll see how we can get it in. I want to respect the time that we have remaining for this message. And obviously we have to move into another. One of the most dangerous things you could ever do with Brother Lemon is let me preach and not tell me how much time I have. Because I will take time. But I don't waste time. Amen. If you study Isaiah chapters 1 through 5 carefully, eight times Isaiah says, woe to Israel. Woe to you, woe to you, woe to you, woe to you. Isaiah was woeing Israel all day long. He was letting Israel know of their failures, letting Israel know of their mistakes, letting Israel see these things. Now, this is a very appropriate point I'm making because, again, you know, sometimes we're living in an atmosphere and in a time in Adventism where it seems like we're woeing a lot of people. There's a lot of woes out there. Look at who this conference is messing up. This minister is messing up. This ministry is messing up. And we're focusing a lot on everybody's mess ups. Isaiah had a similar uh, experience. He's woeing the children of Israel. But eventually... Something happened in Isaiah's experience. Now, look at Isaiah 6, because this is a a breakdown of what needs to happen with us. It says, in the year that King Uzziah died. Now, you need to study the story of King Uzziah. I believe it's either 1st or 2nd Chronicles 26. So either 1st or 2nd Chronicles 26. In your spare time, read the story of King Uzziah. It's a very deep story. So when the Bible says, in the year that King Uzziah died, bottom line, King Uzziah was God's champion. He was the man. He literally was doing great things for the Lord. He was one who honored God. But as King Uzziah experienced success and blessings in his ministry, Uzziah made the mistake that a lot of people make. He started overstepping his boundaries. And one day he goes into the temple and he takes the censer. And only priests are allowed to do that. And Isaiah begins to do work that only belonged to the priest. The priest told him, King Isaiah, you have overstepped your boundaries. Please do not do this. King Isaiah, away. I'm King Isaiah. It's all right. He started to do it. And right in the presence of those priests, it says that his forehead started to roll back and he started to get stricken with leprosy. God struck him with leprosy right there. As he was stricken with leprosy, King Isaiah died a leper. His sin consumed him. And it's deep because, again, in Chronicles, it says that Isaiah was a witness to this. So it's not by accident in verse 1 when it says, in the year that King Isaiah died. It was a sobering experience for Isaiah, but it was a perfect opportunity for God. And it says, in the year that King Isaiah died, I saw also the Lord sitting upon a throne high and lifted up, and his train filled the... He beheld God in the sanctuary. He was seeing the future work, the future goals of God through the sanctuary services. And Isaiah saw the Lord sitting upon his throne in the temple. He is beholding God in his glory. You see, where's the throne of God in the temple? Where's the throne of God in the sanctuary? Where's that? That's in the most holy place, right? Mercy seat. God's throne. 
That's why above the mercy seat, between the two cherubims, there was the Shekinah glory. So he's literally beholding by faith. He's seeing the Shekinah glory. He's beholding the glory of God. I wonder what happens when people behold the glory of God. It says... Verse 2, above it stood the seraphims. Each one had six wings, with twenty covered his feet, with twenty covered his face, and with twenty covered his feet, and with twenty did fly. And one cried unto another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the post of the door moved at the voice of him that cried, and the house was filled with smoke. Then said I, what? Woe is me. You see, as he beheld the glory of of God, when he saw the beauty of his character, his eyes are no longer on frail, weak, sinful Israel. His eyes are now fixed on the one that he cannot even dare to compare himself to. And as he beholds the glory of God, the character of God, the goodness of God, the wonders of God, as he sees that, Isaiah says, I am ungodly. Woe is me. Woe is me. He says, woe is me. He says, woe is me, I, for I am undone. Because I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For mine eyes have seen the king, the Lord of hosts. God's glory woke him up to his true condition. It will be nothing less that will wake you up. You see, if I keep looking at the failures of others... I'm telling you, my brothers and sisters, you have to see the subtle satanic efforts behind the ministry of exposure that's happening right now. It's not hard to know the latest dirt that's happening amongst God's people. Brothers and sisters, there was dirt before these ministries came up and there's going to be dirt during these ministries. And if the Lord tarries and maybe some of these ministries and ministers even die, there'll be dirt that will continue to happen. There's dirt in God's church. Always has been and will be until God finishes his cleansing work. But if you and I keep fixing our eyes, look at what they're doing in that conference. Look at what they're doing over here. Look at what they're doing. And, and we're not being part of any of God's solution. We're not following inspired solutions to these problems. Because a lot of people think, start all these independent churches, start all these home churches, start all this breakaway, breakaway, breakaway. And the problem is, you can break away and start a home church, but the question is, does God have your heart? Because if God don't have your heart, you'll be one of the most wicked offshoots. And you will show people a pretense of God that is not true. The question is, does God have our hearts? And so it is Isaiah, he sees the glory of God. As he sees the glory of God, he sees his true condition. He beholds it. He understands it. And he sees, I am undone. I am ungodly. But you know what? God didn't leave him there, did he? You see, the goal of God is not to get you and I to say, I'm ungodly. And then God says, good, they got it. And then just walks away. I'm so thankful that's not the Jesus I know. You know why? Look at what the rest of the verses say. Verse 6. Then, keep that in mind. Then, these words are put in the Bible on purpose, family. Then, after this happens, then this happens. What does it say? It says, then 
flew one of the seraphims unto me, having a live coal in his hand, which he had taken with the tongues from off the altar. And he laid it upon my mouth and said, lo, this hath touched thy lips. And what happened? Thine iniquity is taken away and thy sins purged. My brothers and sisters, when you and I fix our minds on the errors, the weaknesses, the mistakes, and the sins of others, the Bible is showing us you become blind to your own sins. This is biblical. This is scripture. When we start dwelling, look at what the conferences are messing up. Look at what this. I'm not saying that we don't deal with these issues. I believe with all of my heart we need to deal with these issues. But it is not being done the way we're seeing it being demonstrated by blasting everything on YouTube and all this other stuff. That's not how it gets done. It's going to be done with pen and with voice, having enough love in our hearts to go to some of these individuals, to pray, to plead, to encounter, and to counsel, and to correct with the word of God. It's going to take a lot of Christ-like love and effort to deal with the sins that are happening in the church from leadership to the laity. It's easy to sit behind a camera in your living room and just talk about everybody and then press off and feel like your work is done. It's hard when you got to say, Pastor, I need to talk to you. It's hard when you got to call a fellow worker and say, listen, I see some things you're doing, man. What's going on? Why are you doing this? It looks like you're veering away from the faith. What's happening? How can I help you? Thus saith the Lord. That takes Christ-like energy. That takes Christ-like love. It's easy to sit behind a camera and just press on and vomit all your feelings out before everybody. And then next thing you know, just press off and feel like your work is being done, like you're finishing the work. My brothers and sisters, Isaiah was blind to his own iniquity while he was very crystal clear and calling out the sins of others. And so it is that after he sees the glory of God, now the angel comes to him and it says, then after this happens, now the angel comes and says, Isaiah, now your sins are forgiven. Isaiah didn't even realize that his worship was ceremonial and cold and lifeless. This is the, literally the description of Ellen White of how she describes Isaiah 6. She said Isaiah's worship was cold, lifeless. It was just a ceremony. And I'm like, hold up. You mean to tell me that his worship was cold and lifeless when he said, woe to Israel? My brothers and sisters, I hope you understand how deep that is. Because if we saw Isaiah going before the Israelites, woe to you who call darkness light and light darkness. Woe to you who call evil good and good evil. Woe. Many people today would have said, man, Isaiah is bold. Isaiah is a champion. Isaiah is serious, boy. Isaiah is a servant of servants of God. God says, nope. Isaiah's worship was cold. Isaiah's worship was ceremonial. Isaiah's worship was lifeless. I'm just so thankful that there's about 60, what, 66, 67 chapters in Isaiah? I'm glad God caught Isaiah right at six. Because God knew Isaiah... You got fire in you. Now, this is my thing. Pray for these individuals. Reach out to them. I have. I'll tell you right now. Not all of them because there's too many. But there are many that I have their numbers and they know that I called them. I sent them text messages. I reached out. I'll, I'll speak to them. There's some of them we talk on the phone. And I'm like, bro, I don't agree with you. Why are you doing this? 
And we share Bible verses, spirit of prophecy quotes, and, and, and we talk. Sometimes we don't see eye to eye, but we can trust, hey, by God's grace, we can go ahead and maybe we'll see eye to eye in the very near future. And we keep the communication ways open. But then there are some who cut off and don't want to talk to you either. It's just part of the reality. The point is, is that Isaiah saw a problem in Israel that was a problem. But Isaiah was not in the right condition to properly address the problem. Properly, fully. God had to wake him up, help him see his true condition. He realizes I am ungodly. I'm undone. I'm unclean. I am messed up just like the people. The angel says, all right. Number one, now your iniquities are purged. You are forgiven. You now see yourself, your true condition. And then God says, I wonder who I could send. And I says, hear my Lord. Send me. God says, you said exactly what I wanted you to say, Isaiah. I will send you. He is known as the great Old Testament gospel prophet. You see, once we're convinced, I am ungodly. I'm unlike you. How are we convinced? We must behold the Lord. What we just read in Isaiah 6, it says it in Christ Object Lessons 159. In one way only can we have a true knowledge of self. We must behold Christ. I literally just explained to you Christ Object Lessons 159. I just used Bible to do it. In one way only can we have a true knowledge of self. We must behold Christ. She says, it is ignorance of him that makes us so exalted in our own self-righteousness. That's the following part of the sentence. Christ Object Lessons, 159, you read it. And so, when I realize that I am ungodly, when I realize, Lord, I'm not like you, the very people that I claimed and deemed to be so wicked, Lord, I'm just like them. Have mercy upon me. It's no longer have mercy upon them. Lord, have mercy upon me. When we get to that place, God says, now I can use you better. And when we see ourselves ungodly, remember, who is it that God loves to justify the ungodly. You see, you don't have to be afraid of saying I'm ungodly. What we need to realize is super quick that we're ungodly because until we realize we're ungodly, we can't be justified. So as soon as I see it, Lord, all right, I get it. There's nothing that I can commend myself before you. There's nothing that I have done or can ever do or am doing that can merit me anything from you. The only thing I'm worthy of is death, Father. When we believe that, when we accept that, all that I have, all that I've ever given is simply because you gave it to me first. Forgive me, Lord, for ever thinking that it was mine and it was me and it was innately me. When we get to that place, do you know that that's when heaven literally does cartwheels, if you will? That's when heaven is rejoicing. Because heaven says, Father, they see it. And Jesus so happily says, now, they will never trust themselves ever again. So now, they will learn to trust me, which is to trust my words.
And when we get to that place, God has no problem justifying the ungodly. Question. How many of us understood the study? I'm not going to ask you, do you see it? I'm not going to ask you to give a public declaration of if you're convinced. But what I'm going to recommend is that you plead with God. Lord, help me to be convinced. This is not easy. Some of us have lived decades of self-righteousness and self-exaltation. And as much as we'd love for it to just, in an instance, go away, sometimes it's going to take some wrestling. And so I'm not even going to ask you to do that because maybe out of the appeal and, and the environment, maybe what you're feeling in your heart, you'll say, oh, yes, yes, I see I'm ungodly. When God says, no, I'm the faithful and true witness, no, you don't. Not yet. So it is that I just simply will say, I want to encourage you that as we go to our knees, let us plead with God silently within our hearts. Lord, help me to be convinced. And then once I'm convinced, show me how to live this new life in you. That's why our 11 o'clock message, cultivating faith, that will be our subject. Let's go to our knees and let us pray together. Father in heaven, we thank you, Lord. We thank you for helping us to see what we need to see. There's none righteous, no, not one. There's none that doeth good. Lord, we are altogether ungodly. The problem is, we are not convinced. And there's only one way. It's not going to come just by constantly pointing out our sins to each other. But we must show the uplifted Savior. We must behold his righteousness. And I pray, Father, that you will help us to see the character of your Son. In such a marked way, Isaiah saw in the future what today now is. You are in the most holy place. We're in the anti-typical day of atonement. Lord, help us to see beyond the veil. Help us to behold thy glory. Help us to study that greater light, Jesus Christ. Help us, Father, that we might behold something so powerful about Jesus that it will give us a clear understanding of our true state. And finally, when we relinquish all trust in self and lean wholly upon you and your words, we are grateful that you have already told us that you love to justify the ungodly. Thank you for this amazing grace. Thank you so much for this love. Let it be settled in each of our hearts that one day we can finally say, 
I am convinced. In Jesus' name. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.